So the secret to, to being successful, in my opinion, is having people who know their business cold and having them like you and want to train you. And that's what I had. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Academy podcast, the podcast dedicated to simplifying the commercial real estate industry for the masses. Each week, we sit down with industry experts to dissect the many facets of commercial real estate and extract valuable lessons you can apply to your business. Whether you're a new or seasoned business owner or investor, the Commercial Real Estate Academy podcast will be your go-to resource for all your commercial real estate needs. Now, here are your hosts, Rafael Collazo and Jeff Walston. Welcome to the Commercial Estate Academy podcast. I'm your host, Rafa Coyasso, here with my co-host, Jeff Walston. How's it going, my friend? It's going wonderful. I'm, you know, uh, finding Danny sweet as candy, as I like to say, or bright as rain. I like that one as well. But uh, everything's going good. Uh, looking at 2023 business, uh, man, it's it's been a roller coaster. Uh, I like it. Uh, what's going on? Um, I'm hoping uh, it actually starts tapering off. It, actually uh, but that way i can rise to the occasion and show how i can overcome it so um but yeah everything's going well other than that what about you Raphael? how's it going over there great great and i know you had a couple projects you're wrapping up and you got a lot on your plate right now so it's pretty good to to see that you know the the sentiment in the economy right now what the people are saying if you're if you're willing to put yourself out there and continue to hustle and you serve your clients in whatever capacity they need I mean, that's really where you can adapt and hopefully come out of this and become stronger than ever. But today we have an, we honor of interviewing Joel Freeland. He's actually located in Chicago, which is not too far away from us. Uh, I've had a chance to go up to Chicago a few times, and I love the city. Uh, but we're going to be focusing a lot on the industrial side of commercial real estate. So we're really excited to have you, Joel. Welcome. Thanks. It's great to be here. I want you to know that uh, every year I drive through Louisville on my way down to Florida. Nice. <laughs> I love it. When I go over that bridge mm -hmm. right past Indiana and I get into Kentucky, I am so happy because now I'm in the South yeah, and that's where I want to be in the wintertime. You know, it gets really cold here. In the threat, yeah, yeah, Chicago, my, yeah. I, I went to Chicago once in the winter. I, I will say I will never <laughs> partake in that if I don't have to. No, if it's a conference or something, I'll, I'll make it, make it work, but. But that's great. I'm, I'm I'm surprised you drive as far as you do. I mean, do you enjoy the the scenic route and everything? We have the greatest time. Yeah. Usually my wife and my son uh, join us. My son's 27 now. <laughs> this year, uh, my son and I drove down and uh, my wife flew down to meet us because <laughs> she, she got tired of it. You know, oh, we, wow. We, we try all these great restaurants. We found one uh in Valdosta, Georgia, a steakhouse called Jack's Chop House. And now I'm gonna stop there every time. It's an amazing place. In Chicago, you go to a place like Morton's, mm -hmm. uh, which is a or, or Gibson's, and two people go to dinner and it costs 150 bucks. Jack's Chop House, 80 bucks, all we could eat. <laughs> it oh, was wow. great. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Well, for those yeah. of you guys who are doing the road trip, uh be sure to add that to your list I, we, i'm glad we we're able to contribute uh not only commercial real estate knowledge but culinary knowledge as well so that's awesome so joel we we obviously greatly appreciate it. i know you're busy and we're really thankful that you had the opportunity to sit down with us today but one thing we're kind of curious about is you know we always like to get a little bit of an idea of, of the individual's backstory that we're talking to so i'd love to kind of pick your brain as far as you know where you come from and everything else 
Sure. Uh, so I'm from a suburb of Chicago called Highland Park. And um, I went to the University of Michigan. And when I graduated, uh, I wanted to stay in Chicago. And I found a family that owned an industrial real estate brokerage and syndication business. Their name is Podolsky. And the Podolskys uh, were a dad who at the time was 63, which is interesting because that's exactly how old I am today. And he had uh, uh, two sons, Steve and Randy, and a daughter, Bonnie. Uh, and I found them sort of accidentally when I was looking for a job. I went in for an interview. Randy wanted to hire me to be in the property management business. And his dad met me and he said, are you freaking kidding? <laughs> this guy belongs in sales. Mm -hmm. And I told the dad the story of how I went door to door when I was 14 and I got 70 people to agree to let me cut their lawn and uh, trim their, their trees and all that stuff doing landscaping. Uh, my parents had been out of town and I said, I'm going to start a business. So I went door to door. It took me um, less than a week to get 70 people to say yes. Getting those lawns cut was a lot harder than having people say, yes, you can cut my lawn. <laughs> it was... It was terrible. I hired a bunch of high school kids and I grew up in a sort of affluent area. They didn't really know what it was to work. So they said, yeah, I'll work for you. They were just sort of kidding when they said they'd work. <laughs> so I had a lot of angry neighbors whose lawns were getting cut badly or not at all. Wow. So I had to get to work. I, I was cutting lawns late into the evening. Um, and I told uh, Milt Podowski, the dad, about this. And he said, kid, it's it's uh, it was 1981. He said, there's a recession on interest rates are 17%. We own 84 buildings. We have 6 million square feet. It's worth uh, hundreds of millions of dollars. And we're suffering through a recession. I want you to tell me what you would do to lease my 10 vacant buildings. And I said, well, I'd go to an industrial park and I would do what I did when I was a kid. I'd go door to door and I'd tell the neighbors hey, do you lease space that you can move out of? Because I have a space down the street and I'd like you to move there. He said, you do that. He said, you do that. He says, I'm just setting you out there. You go out on your own and drive around and go to those places and I will pay you big commissions when you lease them. And I did it. And uh, I, I leased up nine of his 10 buildings and got to know the family really well. And they, they almost brought me in like family. They were, they were mentors. And there was a, a fourth person named Richard who was also brought in many years earlier, like a family member. And they, they treated me like they treated Richard. We were like uh, a third and fourth son. And, and Richard was older. So he also mentored me. So the secret to, to being successful, in my opinion, is having people who know their business cold and having them like you and want to train you. And that's what I had. Steve Podolsky, to this day, is still an investor with me, and it's 42 years later. So when I was in Florida, I went and had lunch with him. He, he called me last week. We have a new investment, and he's in it. And he called me late at night, and he said, you tell your wife that this call is payback for all the times you called me at night when you needed stuff when you were 22. And I went into the kitchen, and I said to Stacy. Steve just talked to me. She said, it's late. I said, remember the days I used to go 
go uh, to his house or call him at 9.30 or 10.30 at night and how pissed off his wife was. I mean, it really upset her because he and I were like this. Mm-hmm. But it's the training. It was the training that did it. That's amazing. And and I think that's contrary to a lot of the quote unquote culture that at least in the past has been that way with commercial real estate. It's like, you know, you know, get out there and you figure it out and it's kind of like eat what you kill. And, you know, there, there's really no guidance nor, you know, it, it's almost a um, I don't know how to describe it, but like it's almost a badge of honor if you've kind of just, you know, worked through the 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 lack of, of any any type of uh, formal training or anything like that. And you know, I think part of part of being a successful and especially in the broker space requires you to have initiative and requires you to get out there and 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 kind of find ways to create business. But I do also think that it, like you mentioned, having that mentor relationship is also a very important piece. So, yeah, Jeff, I have a question for you. Sure. So you started your construction company by yourself without a mentor. You just did it right. And then you went in to work for somebody else. Where did you learn more on your own through the school of hard knocks or when you were working for someone else who knew the business real well? I, I would, in my situation, it was definitely on my own. Yeah. You know, it, when those lessons come through and you fail on your own, they stick with you and you know exactly how this is what I'm not going to do. Um, I think if you have a good mentor and they can kind of walk you through like, Hey, don't do this. This is what I did. Um, that's in their back of your head and you're listening to them. But if you would have went through that, in my opinion, it would have really stuck and been seared into your brain that, Hey, don't, you know, don't do that at all. Don't ever try that. Like, um, or don't try it again, I should say. Uh, so that, that would be, um, I had prior to starting my own company though, I, I had other mentors, uh, Growing up, my dad was in construction, so I was always around general contractors, and I was the kid that always needed something to do. I couldn't just sit there, or, or um, so I always would clean up job sites. And while I was doing that, I was sweeping a broom and talking to these general contractors. They're in their sixties, been doing this all their life, and picking their brain when I'm like eight years old. Hey, you know, why do you do this? Why do you do that? And they would sit there and answer it. So. Um, after years and years of that, that's kind of where I got my uh, knowledge prior to starting, essentially. But yeah, so you, were, you, you go ahead, funny. go ahead, go ahead, Joel. Sorry. Um, one of my uh, potential new investors is a very wealthy guy. I'd say he may be in the top 50 wealthiest people in Chicago. And I had breakfast a short time ago with uh, his his daughter and he and the son-in-law. And the guy's in his 80s. He has so many hundreds of millions of dollars. And I said, so what do you do for a hobby? And get this one. He says, I go to one of my multi-tenant buildings and I bring a broom and I sweep. So people think that I'm the maintenance guy, but I'm the owner. (laughs) Who does that? I heard you talk about sweeping. It comes full circle that this guy made it big and now he's sweeping. Well, yeah. that actually goes to show humility too. I mean, it, it's yeah. unbelievable the the because I I think there's a lot of people out there that think that you know people who have you know created significant wealth in their lifetime have this you know they have this negative connotation. But in reality, like the most generous people I've ever met in my entire life have been individuals who have really made it big. And the reason and reason they have is they they brought a lot of people together, created something of significance, and now they want to be able to help the next generation to be able to achieve a similar. Um, you know, success. So, I mean, I, I, I'm not surprised that someone like that would be willing to do that 
uh, and and probably that's a big reason why they've achieved what they have. So, yeah, I, I like it. I've, I've actually mentored. Uh, this sounds like a crazy number. Over seventy people. That's amazing. Forty. Yeah. When I had when I had a brokerage company and built it up from zero, uh, we hired and mentored uh, people right out of college. Some people changing careers. We hired people in their fifties and sixties who whose businesses were sold or they went out of business. Um, mentoring is the best thing in the world. And so I was so well mentored by the Podolsky family and Richard back when I was in my twenties that yeah. I know how to do it. Cause I have the model. That's amazing. Nice. Yeah. So that kind of brings me into the next question is uh, there early on in those struggles. And you said you're building up that brokerage. Um, what, strategy did you use to kind of grow the business and kind of overcome some of those uh, speed bumps, I would like to call them, uh, early on? So um, in our business, it's a cold calling business. And what I would do is I would take the newer people personally, I would go out with them door to door in the industrial parks like I did when I worked for the Podolskis. So I worked for, for the Podolsky family for 10 years. And then I started syndicating and I went to the dad and I said, I'm going to start syndicating uh, some deals. And he said, I'll invest with you. Um, stick around. You should stay here. And I said, the problem is you're a family um, and I'd like to be adopted by you. You treat me like a son, but I'm not one and I don't own any of the company. So I went and started my business. And when I started the brokerage business and doing syndications on the side, it's a side hustle. Um, I hired a, a group of five people all at once. I advertised and I, I brought in five people. And my thinking was two will make it, three will be not, not able to do it. And pretty much those were the odds. But I took every one of them, sometimes in groups of two or three, and sometimes one-on-one, door-to-door canvassing in the industrial parks of the Chicago suburbs. I'll give you one story. Uh, there was a there's a park in a town, uh, an industrial park in a town called Elmhurst. And I took a young broker with me who had been with us for no longer than three months. And I said, watch how we do it. So he and I walked up to the front door of a manufacturing facility, about a 20,000 square foot building. There were probably about 60 employees there, let's say. And. We walked in the door and I said to the receptionist who's sitting at the front desk, uh, hi, who would I talk to about whether you might consider selling this building? And she said, oh, no, we're not selling. We're never selling. And I looked at the young guy and I said, watch this. I said, so uh, you're never selling the building? And he probably wondered what I was doing. I could see that there was an open door to an office Someone was sitting there and it looked like an older person. And I was guessing it was the owner of the business. And I wanted the owner to overhear me. So she said, no, we're never selling. I said, how can you tell? She says, well, because I live about two miles away. And if we moved, then I'd have to drive a longer distance. And I'm thinking, yeah, they're going to keep the business here because of you. Yeah. Exceptionist. That's not how it works. So I said, kid, watch this. So we walk out the door and we're walking down the sidewalk front of the building to my car. And this guy comes running out the door and he says, wait, 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 I heard you. He says, we are selling the building. He said, how did you know? 
And I said, well, I didn't know, but you want to go get a cup of coffee at Denny's? And he said, yes. So the three of us went to Denny's and we sat down and he said, how much is the building worth? And I said, it's worth a million dollars. It's 20,000 feet, 50 bucks a foot. He said, I'll sell it to you. And we bought it. <laughs> Throw a wow. So that's how I trained people. It, it, I brought them in in a group. I call it the class of whatever year it was. And then I had training meetings where the whole group of like 20 or 25 of us would go to a restaurant and we'd have a back room and we would role play and just chat about how to do the business. It was outstanding. And over time, the, the odds worked out that way. Of the 70, I would say that about 30 became really successful. And right now there's 15 industrial brokers in the Chicago area who are all alumni of the Joel training. And I will tell you, at least 10 of them are worth five to $10 million each. I'm a good trainer. I'm a good trainer. <laughs> trainer. <laughs> because I was trained well. Yeah. No, I didn't, I didn't just do it. I learned how to do it from these people who taught me. That's yeah. amazing. No, I, and, that, and that just goes to show the, the value obviously of mentorship, but, but of repetition, because like you said, once you, I think one of the biggest struggles that I faced early on was that I was kind of, I never was in a sales role before I had never done any type of sales. So I didn't really know what to expect. And mine was just call. Like I would just randomly call people and just be like, Hey, you're interested in selling. They say, no, I was like, okay, next. And it was more of like a numbers type game, but there was no method to the madness per se. And it wasn't really until I started, you know, meeting with other people and understanding, you know, getting, getting more of an understanding of how to communicate and to, to navigate these types of situations that I got any better at it. So it's, it's, it's the fact that you're willing to do that was obviously amazing. So <laughs> I got, yeah. I've got stories that go from crazy to crazier with cold calling. One guy pulled a gun on me. Uh, what are you doing here? Um, another one. I, I mentioned when I came in, I said, would you guys like to move out of this dump? I was just kidding around. Oh gosh. And the father and two sons that own the, the dump, which was not a dump, by the way, the father said, get him out of here. And the sons picked me up one under each arm and they carried me out the front door and threw me in the parking lot. And I ripped my pants and these guys, I'm, I'm five, eight. These guys were like six, five, literally, they just carried me out. So, you know, cold calling can be dangerous. <laughs> well, to be fair, use your words <laughs> yeah, wisely. That's, yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> you want don't lead with do you guys want to move out of this dump, you know. <laughs> that's awesome. No, yeah. but so one of the curious curiosities is obviously, you know, you the reason you got into industrial to start off with was because you had, you know, the the ultimate brokers that you you or the the, the entity that you joined was focused on industrial. They had owned a lot of industrial buildings. As far as the syndication route, why did you decide to go that route as opposed to just doing partnerships or you know, just going JV on stuff? I went to Milt Podolsky, and after 10 years of working for him, uh, he spent the winters at a million-dollar house in Florida. He had a condo on Michigan Avenue. He had a house in the fanciest suburb of Chicago. He drove a fancy car, and... He worked whenever he wanted. And uh, I went to him and I said, I don't think you got this wealthy by being a broker, did you? He said, no. He said, you know how much property I own? I said, yeah, millions of square feet. He said, well, that's where it's at. He said, I started syndicating in the 1960s 
And if you live long enough, your stuff becomes valuable and we hang on to it forever. And I got money coming in cash flow every month. And uh, I just live a great lifestyle because I'm an owner. Brokers die broke. And I said, oh, that's when I asked him to help me syndicate my first deal. Mm. Yeah. And, and, so, and is there a reason for the quote unquote syndication model versus a, you know, just bringing, you know, two friends together or three friends together and just deciding to buy something? Yeah. Um, I learned it from him. He had groups of like 10 people or 20 people. It's it in any business. If you're too reliant on any one customer or any one investor, and then they decide bye-bye, you're sunk. For example, when we make a lease, we, we own now 16 buildings. The, the portfolios have gotten very small because we've sold a lot during the good times over the past couple of years. It's uh, probably half a million square feet, probably worth $50 million. Um, when before I make a lease with a tenant, I ask them a really important question. Manufacturer, we have a manufacturer that makes uh, protein bars who was on Shark Tank in year one. He's in one of our buildings. And I said, what's the secret to success? And he said, having lots of customers. Because if you have one customer that's 50 or 60% of your business and they go to a different uh, manufacturer, your problem is that now you're out of business. So the key is, is having enough investors that if any one or two or three or even 10 say, I'm out, I've got 200 more. So every time we buy a building, I can now send it to 200 people. And also, most people like diversification. They don't want to keep investing with me over and over and over with big amounts of money. So we, we allow uh, new people to invest with us for as little as $25,000 in a deal. Our average investor is 100000 per deal. But I have a young doctor who a few years ago invested with us, and he put in 25000 And I talked to him yesterday, and I said, for our new deal, uh, you want to go? And he says, yeah, let's uh, reinvest the 25000 and put 50000 more in. And that's organic growth. Mm -hmm. So right now, I have 200 investors. And when I raise money, I sent out a, a letter, I, I email like the description of the, of the investment. And I have people just emailing back, I'll take 50,000, I'll take 250,000, I'll take 80,000. And we fill it up with a group. Uh, and I think there's just a, a safety in that. By the okay. way, one of the reasons my investors in particular stick with us and like to keep going in is we do all cash deals with no mortgages. In 2008, Jeff, you know, you can relate to this. In 2008, I got crushed. I had 50 buildings worth $200 million and I had seven lenders and people had loaned me money personally. And when the market came to a, like a bubble popped, I was so screwed. You see that couch behind me? I call that my depression couch. I was in a depression. I thought I had lost everybody's money. I was literally, I believe, close to being suicidal because I thought that I had let down 200 people and that we were going to have to sell our house and go bankrupt. And it took me a long time to figure out that I didn't need to be ashamed of what happened, that I actually could work hard and bring it back and make it work. And that's what I did. But it took a long time and a lot of effort. 
and a lot of anguish. So we only do all cash deals now because uh, my investors are usually very wealthy people or people who don't want to lose money. And we're the only people you know who do this. Some people say, you're such an idiot. Why do you do deals all cash? You can't make huge IRRs. Your returns aren't going to ever be as good. And the answer is, you know what? We sleep at night. <laughs> That's what we do. Well, There's no you, bank that's going to come tell us mm-hmm. what we have to do to pay down a loan or they're putting us in workout. You know, people in the banks and workout, when you get in trouble, you go to a different department than the department that made the loan. It's called workout. They're assholes. All of them. Yeah. People who, you know, people who go into the military, there might be like 5% who go in because they want to kill people. And sometimes the police department, you see these on the news. There are people who go into the police department because they want to beat up people and stick their, you know, beat, beat them up and tase them and whatever. That's workout people in banks. That's who they are. So you don't ever want to default on a loan because you go into workout and they become just nasty. Mm-hmm. And so I never want to be in workout. <laughs> never want to have a default. So we do these all cash deals and wealthy people eat them up. I can imagine. I mean, the first rule of money is like you, you, what was it? Warren Buffett said, don't lose money. And then read rule number one again, don't lose money. I mean, if you think, if you think about, if you think about it too, I mean, think about all these, all these, uh, you know, one of the things that I see is somewhat of a bubble is the, the multifamily space with all these different syndicators getting in and, you know, they're Mm -hmm. somewhat inexperienced. They're pitching all these deals that have quote unquote, these absurd returns, but they're loading it up with debt and they're projecting, you know, that they're, you're going to be able to raise rents by X, Y, Z amount. But as soon as a correction hits and people cannot afford to pay the rents that they, they, that that they're charging rents are going to come down. I mean, it's part of the normal cycle, the normal business cycle. And so in those in situations, I'm very, I'm going to be very, interested to see because it's going to happen. There's going to be a lot of people who start defaulting. There's going to be a lot of it uh, of people who had these absurd projections that were paying top dollar for these types of properties with debt, with, with significant debt, not just a little bit of debt. And it's going to be interesting, you know? Yeah. It worked because the federal reserve did what they call QE, which is quantitative easing. Mm-hmm. And they kept rates low. You know, they can artificially make the economy just simple. Mm-hmm. And they did. And Jerome Powell, who's uh, the head of the Federal Reserve, has figured out that uh, the inflation is not the only bad thing. It's that everything's too heated up and mm-hmm. he's going to slow it down. And if it wasn't for the Fed artificially keeping everything the way that they did, there would have been a big bubble pop several years ago. Mm-hmm. And instead, they kept it chugging through COVID. And now they're starting to pull back. And there's going to be a huge downturn. Mm-hmm. I watch a lot of podcasts with very famous economists who all disagree with each other, but uh, it's a matter of what, how bad and when mm-hmm. and it's, it's going to happen. Oh, it is. No, no doubt. I mean, you're starting to see, I think, I think one of the biggest red flags that I've seen is, you know, credit card debt among personal or consumers has, has been spiking over the last several years. It's probably going to continue to spike because people are supplementing their, their their lifestyle and not only lifestyle but just surviving. I mean, look at groceries in, in in supermarkets. I mean, the price of all these different goods has risen by twenty five to thirty percent over the last couple of years. And so, from from a general consumer perspective, 
there is going to be a pinch at some point. Now, which sector is going to be the one that caves first is a different story. But as soon as one of it ha- happens, you know, we're probably going to go into some form of recession. Now, it won't be, I think, as as catastrophic as maybe the 2008 financial crisis, mainly because of the fact that there was lack of regulatory controls uh, from from a banking standpoint. But you never know, I guess. Well, I'm, I'm a little bit of a doom and gloomer. That's why I do all cash deals. By the yeah. way, doing all cash deals is really hard because it means instead of raising 20% of the money that's needed for a million dollar deal, I've got to raise the whole million instead of 200,000. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a ton of work. It's does a lot it, more work. Does it benefit you from a negotiation standpoint at all or not really? No, yeah. Cause, not. cause industrial, cause industrial is such a hot property type that I'm sure there's, you know, there's a lot yeah, of competition. There's, there's an unending demand for industrial right now. I'm yeah. Last year, I bought three buildings. I was trying to buy 12. I couldn't find any really good deals. Yeah. They're going to start happening because this this floating rate debt that people have is going up and they can't afford it. And when they go to refi, the buildings are eventually not going to appraise out and the bank is going to make them pay down the loan and then they're going to be forced to sell. So I have a group of 40 investors and we have a little mini all cash fund that's ready to swoop in and just buy stuff. But right now yeah. it's not, it's not time yet. Right mm-hmm. now it's still too hard. It's probably not very many I'd imagine, but <laughs> a mini fund. That's funny. Yeah, exactly. I'm just kind of curious on, so your criteria when you're looking into these investments, uh, what do you look for? And can you kind of go over that? I'm just really curious. Yeah. I'll give you industrial real estate 101 in a minute. Um, Industrial buildings are nothing but boxes, big boxes, small boxes. You see the big ones on the tollway that are occupied by Amazon and by Wayfair and Target for their online stuff and many other very, very large uh, buildings. Then that we call that A, A industrial. There's B and C, which is not quite as large and not quite as new. And we play in the B and C area. And that's smaller buildings, older buildings, shorter ceilings. Um, the, the difference is really uh, state-of-the-art versus state-of-the-art back in the 1970s. So we buy these buildings that are never going to be replaced because they would cost too much to replace. What's most important is they've got to have really good loading, which means a truck dock or more trucking. Yeah. Truck but here are the three rules of industrial real estate. Parking, parking, parking. Because if you can't park your employees, you can't stay in the building. So we buy buildings with a lot of parking so that people can move in and stay there for a long time as they grow. Ceiling heights are really important because people stack up their products on racks. If you can't use your cube in your in your uh, warehouse, then you can't stack as much stuff and you got to spread it out and you need more square footage. So if you have the parking, the ceiling height, and the good loading, and it's a good location, um, those those are our criteria. We buy those buildings. Over the years, we bought uh, 94 of them. We've sold 78. I think the math is right. 78. We still have 16. And the key to our success is we own long-term. You know, all these guys who go, yeah, you're in and you'll be out and your IRR will be 20%. In three years, that's gambling. That's bullshit. Mm-hmm. You know, that only works when the market's going up. Absolutely. When the market's Absolutely. steady or it's going down, 
it's the opposite. That's how you lose all of your investment in a deal. You you borrow a lot of money and you try for the home run and you actually have a hot potato that nobody wants. You know that game, hot potato, Mm -hmm. where you pass it around? Yeah. You don't buy and hold long term. You're you're playing hot potato and you can make a lot of money playing hot potato during good times. People yeah. have made millions and millions and millions buying stuff, taking too much risk and getting lucky and getting out before something bad happened. But we buy this stuff and we keep it. We have a building that we've owned for 32 years. It's the first one that I did with Milt Podolsky. Our tenant is the most heartwarming, amazing group. It's called Feed My Starving Children. Church and school groups go to this warehouse and they pack food and they they put it in uh, little packets and then they put those in boxes and they put those on pallets. And then they have missionaries all over the world finding out where kids are starving in on the continent of Asia, Africa. And then the missionaries say, ship it here. And then these missionaries help feed the starving kids. They've been a, a tenant of ours for uh, 12 years and that's a great story. That That's an industrial building. They, they have a warehouse. And the parking's important because the people that they have to come pack, the volunteers, need a place to park. That's the key to that deal. So we have a big parking lot and it works. That's amazing. Well, thanks for sharing those characteristics as well. Because I feel yeah. like, you know, obviously industrial, similar to a lot of other property types, has evolved over time. You're starting to see a lot more newer product coming in with these massive ceilings and you know obviously trucking unloading and 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 loading of 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 you know product has not necessarily changed but the demand profile has become a lot more significant you know there's some older buildings here where i've i've placed a couple tenants and you know they were designed in the 70s and you know you know for some reason the spacing between the buildings is not as as much as it would be if, if you were to design the building today you would have much more spacing between the buildings to allow for a lot more semis to come through and whatnot but you know, since it was built in the seventies, that maybe isn't the case, but luckily in that, in this particular case, there's a lot of parking. It's just a lot of different availability, but when it comes to bringing semis in, that's when you start trying to finagle stuff and trying to make it work. But that park is literally, I think they have three spaces uh, vacant, a total of like 10,000 square feet out of 280,000 square feet. It's like a multi-tenant, you know, industrial park. So it's just unbelievable. The, the, the demand for that type of product. Yeah. And Chicago is amazing. It, it's the best industrial market in the country. It's where the rail mm-hmm. and where uh, the highway system converge. Plus, we have Lake Michigan for a lot of, of uh, water for food companies that need it. But we've got 1.3 billion square feet of industrial. There's 20,000 industrial companies. Uh, we have 8,000 industrial buildings. I've cold called 7,000 of them. And <laughs> so I... It's a great market, a lot of velocity. Every major corporation in the world needs to have a facility here. And it's uh, really unusual. I don't think that it would be easy to make a living in a smaller town the way that people do here, building buildings, owning buildings. But the thing that you need to know about those older industrial buildings is they're not being taken out very often because they, they sell for in the neighborhood of about 80 to a hundred dollars a square foot. And to replace them would be $225 a square foot. So people figure out how to use a building that they can buy for 80 bucks 
instead of spending triple that amount to tear it down and build a new one. So the demand for these little industrial buildings, these older industrial buildings is uh, very strong. It's always been strong. Even in the worst recession in 2008, when I was on the couch, mm-hmm. my little buildings were not the problem. The problem was we bought some big ones and that's where we got really screwed because carrying a vacant big building could be $40,000 a month. And when nobody wants them, it's bad. The, the smaller the building, the more companies there are because most people have smaller companies. There are very few really, really big companies. Mm-hmm. So that's why we stick with the small buildings. Uh, there's a ton more demand. That's amazing. Oh, that, that's some great insight. So one thing I was kind of curious about is, you know, you had mentioned obviously the Chicago market being one of the best in the country, if not the world when it comes to the industrial, uh, to industrial real estate. But I'm just kind of curious as far as the future and what you see coming coming down the pike. Obviously, you know, we've kind of had briefly talked about some of the economic, you know, shifts that are occurring currently and the likelihood of something coming down the the, the pike as far as the recession is concerned. What do you what do you see happening in the industrial space? And maybe you can even touch on, you know, maybe your particular investment type, which would be the BC class industrial buildings. Yeah. Um, so I've been through four recessions uh, and none of them were easy. And there's going to be a fifth one now. There just will be. I don't know when. I don't know if it's in a month or six months or in a year, but there will be. And when that happens, the people who get caught are the ones who most recently bought. And so what I see happening is the people who most recently bought at the highest price need to have very, very deep pockets to be able to maintain vacant buildings or they're going to be in trouble. So what I see happening is a slowdown where the really large buildings that are being built like one after another in every city, including your city, um, there's a lot of money and it's, it's from pension funds mostly and insurance companies because they have a lot of money to invest in $40 million projects. There's going to be some big vacancy. That's what's going to happen. Our stuff will have problems too. But what makes me comfortable is that we can cut our rents and not have to pay the lender. So that's that's something that we tell our investors is in the worst case, instead of making an 8% return, which you're making now, maybe you'll make a 6% return. Because we can keep going down in rent and no lender can stop us. You know, lenders have the right to tell you you can't make a deal. They can make you sit vacant because they don't like the lease. So it's coming. It's coming. There's going to be a lot of vacancy. Oh yeah. No, I agree. I mean, loan covenants. I read, I read a a document a while back uh, for a big uh, developer in town. I was reading some of the covenants and I was like, holy moly. (laughs) Like, I mean, the banks pretty much tell you like, Hey, you could, doesn't matter who you are. It's like, we, this is our money. We're going to make sure that we protect ourselves. The bank cares about their, their pockets. So yeah, I have a, I have a partner who used to say banks always win. And you're a slave to the bank. It's modern slavery. Mm-hmm. They own you. <laughs> so having no debt is good. Nobody owns us. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh, yes. Well, Joe, I know uh, I enjoyed our conversation thus far. Um, so my next question is what we typically ask most of our guests. And uh, Raphael and I are both avid readers. Um, and so we like to ask what is one of the most impactful books you've ever read? Uh, and it doesn't have to pertain to commercial, 
or even business. Uh, it could be anything that's maybe changed the trajectory of your life or. Yeah. Don't sweat the small things is a book that I love. Um, I also love quote books, you know, so quotes are, are really great. There's a book of quotes from Mark Twain and it's so fantastic there, you know, it's a sense of humor, funny, but insightful. Yeah, that's awesome. Definitely. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll enjoy we'll, quotes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, keep, I keep it handy. Here you go. Quotes <laughs> that will change your life. Your life. <laughs> we'll have to look at that one. And then you said, yeah. don't sweat the small stuff. And I'm, I'm assuming that's partly, you know, becoming, is that, is it, I guess, what was the premise of that book? Is it more just getting out of your own head and just yeah. you know, like kind yeah, of little, little vignettes, little stories that are one and two pages long mm-hmm. in the book uh, by this guy Carlson who wrote it. And it's, it, it really makes fun of people who take themselves too seriously. Which mm-hmm. is great. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that's a good, that's a good lesson. Again, we're yeah. only here for a short time on this planet. So I feel like if you, if you do, you know, take yourself too seriously, you're not really getting an, uh, an opportunity to, to benefit from all that life has to offer. Um, so that's amazing. That's yeah. amazing insight. So, you know, Joel, we greatly appreciate your time. Obviously we know you're very busy and, you know, we're really excited to see what the future has in store for you and your, in your company. Uh, one thing we like to do at the end of our podcast episode is we like to ask our guests to contribute something to what we call the commercial real estate treasure chest. It's a repository of resources that we like to make available to our audience. And, you know, we've had guests contribute helpful PDFs, Excel sheets, really anything that they feel would be of benefit to the audience. So if you don't mind, I was wanting to see what you're willing to contribute today. Well, if you go to our website, which is Brit Properties, B-R-I-T, that's one T, properties.com, there's an article in there, which is called Why You Should Not Invest With Us. And it's all the questions that I would ask if I were an investor who had had 100 investments and learned everything. These are the questions I would ask. And so we, we give that to potential investors and we say, before you invest, when you call us and say, hey, I heard about your investments, uh, what should I know? I say, read that article. And next to that article is one of our offering books. Um, it's a 60 page book, which our securities lawyer put together. If anybody wants to put together a syndication, they should get in touch with me because I can show them how to do it. Uh, I've done 90 something of them and I'm I'm really uh, well-versed in securities laws. I'm not a lawyer, but I can help on a consulting basis if somebody wants to uh, do their first or maybe their fifth syndication differently. Um, I've helped a lot of people do that. I love mentoring. That's amazing. I'm sure there, I'm sure there'll be people who are listening that are going to take you up on that. So what we'll go ahead and do is we will, we will uh, include the link that he's referencing in, in the treasure chest. So feel free to access that whenever you're, you're, you're willing. It, is that uh, another question, uh, Joe, is how can people get in contact with you? Uh, would you like email or phone or call the Email's office? Great. You... Email's great. Um, BritProperties.com uh, has all of our information. And I'm Joel, J-O-E-L, at Brit1TProperties.com. And um, my favorite thing to do is to help somebody work something through my, my number one mentor right now is a 95 year old man who's been investing with me for decades. I went and sat with him for an hour yesterday cause I can't get enough mentorship even at age 63. Yeah. There's still a lot to learn. 
Well, it's oh, continu- yeah. continuous improvement. I mean, we're 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 imperfect beings, and we're always trying to strive to achieve some level of perfection. We'll never get there, but you know, at, at some point, you know, it, it's part I'd of that. I always say, if you don't make at least one mistake a day, that means you're not doing enough things during the day. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. I have, I have a list That's of true. mistakes I make. Yeah, and, and yeah. Yeah. yeah, and Melanie, my my wife, she likes to mention it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm just just kidding. No, but I, I first off, we do greatly appreciate your time, Joel. Thank you again so much for stopping by. Uh, if you guys are watching this on YouTube, we would greatly appreciate it if you can like and subscribe. It does make a huge impact in our ability to reach a broader audience. Along with that, if you if you listen to this in a podcast format, we would greatly appreciate it if you could leave a five star review. It does make a huge impact on ability to reach a broader audience, and it really is a big deal for the podcast. And we've seen a significant uptick in our downloads as a result. So, again, thank you all so much for stopping by, and we'll see you all next time.